This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can. Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? I can't believe we're in chapter 4 already. I want us to look at verses 1 through 12 of James chapter 4, uh, where we're dealing with servanthood and discipleship. And before he gets to the end of these verses, he once again talks about what you say with your mouth. Uh, uh, it seems that that's just a recurring theme with James. Apparently there was a whole lot of talking going on in the early church, and a lot of it was bad talk. And James had problems with the negative talk coming from Christian folk. And so in every chapter that we have covered, and we're now in chapter 4. James says something about your mouth. Uh, uh, and, 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 and maybe we should pay attention to that in the 21st century church. Amen. Maybe we should be careful about the things that we say. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover, and what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God, and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. 
The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Don't badmouth each other, friends. There you go with the mouth again. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are? to meddle in the destiny of others. I love the message version of the Bible. The lesson, uh, the, the, the text is topical and it is theological. Topically, James is dealing with servanthood and discipleship. He is telling us what God's desire is with us and for us. And what is that desire? God wants us to know him on an intimate level. We don't think much of it because we've been taught this since we were children. But in the time of Jesus, when the disciples come to him in Luke chapter 11 and say to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus begins by saying, when you pray, say, our Father. Now, I wasn't there, but I can imagine when he said that, they said, oh, no, 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 we can't say that. Because in the minds and in the hearts of every Orthodox Jew, there was no way on earth that they would call God Father. That was too close. That was too intimate. In fact, I was having this discussion with, with, with Demetria the other day. We were talking about uh, how awesome the name of God is in Orthodox Jewish circles. We were watching a documentary about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and, and if you get a chance to watch it, uh, it it's a really interesting uh, 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 discussion on how the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. One of the things that was pointed out is that every time someone wrote, a scribe wrote the name of God in, 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 in the scroll, they had to break the pencil, the pen, whatever the thing was, the writing instrument that they used. It could only be used one time. Once you wrote the name of God, you had to discard it. That's how reverent they were about the name of God. It was an unspeakable name. You know, you and I say Jehovah, which is the Americanized version of Yahweh. We don't think anything of it. We say it all the time. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. We don't think anything of it. But for Orthodox Jews to say the name Yahweh was considered to be the most sacred name of all. Jews didn't call God Yahweh. They called him Adonai. And, and, and that's why when, and I know some of y'all still got it, the King James Version, the Old Testament, when you see the Lord and you see Lord in all caps, that's not them trying to emphasize something in the writing. That's them telling you the word that was used, the name that was used for God. Jews would use the name Adonai, would not use the name 
Jehovah, our way of saying it, Yahweh. Uh, they, they simply would not say it. It was considered to be too sacred, too high, too holy a name to say. So when Jesus teaches his disciples, when you pray, say, Our Father, I guarantee you, somebody said, Whoop, uh uh, uh uh. We can't say that. Because it goes against the grain of everything that they had been taught. Why am I taking all this time talking about that? Because Jesus taught his disciples that God wants us to have an intimate, close, familial relationship with him, which is not something that was commonly understood in the time of Christ. So when James here talks about discipleship, he's reminding us of what Jesus said. Jesus wants us to have a close relationship with God, and James re-emphasizes the fact that it is God's desire that we know him on an intimate level. If you read all of the prayers that Jesus prayed that are recorded in Scripture, there's only one prayer that Jesus prays where he does not call God Father. Every other prayer, he calls him Father. And you won't find that from anybody else until you get past the gospel accounts. Anybody want to tell me which prayer he prayed that he didn't say, Father? It's a Jeopardy question. Y'all just sitting here looking at me. It's a, it's a Jeopardy question. Don't answer, Reverend Smith, because I know you know. Y'all can't answer this question. On the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only place. Only place where he prays in all four gospel accounts where he does not address God as Father. So, when you get on Jeopardy, be re 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 remember that answer. Okay? It is God's desire that we know him on an intimate level. And based upon what we learn of him, that we commit ourselves to practicing what we learn in our daily living. We have said before, there is no way for us to know everything there is to know about God. But there is a way for us to know everything that we can know about God. And that is we study his word, we pray. We seek to come into his presence as often as we possibly can. And then what we learn from him, what we learn through our relationship with him, what we learn through our study of his word, we seek to apply it in our daily living. That's all that James is asking for. Do what you know. Don't worry about what you don't know. Do what you know. And I don't know why we, 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 we have no difficulty with that, with anything else in our lives. But when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes we have a hard time doing what we know. Theologically, I told you the, the, the lesson is topical and theological. Theologically, James reminds us that our moral behavior our commitment to the things to which Christ has called us is only possible when we are controlled by the supernatural and not by the natural. That is, we are under the control of the Holy Spirit. Sunday coming is Pentecost. Pentecost is, is the celebration. In my opinion, it is 
the second most important day in the Christian calendar. We don't treat it that way. We should, we don't, but it is the second most important day in the Christian calendar. The first is Resurrection Sunday, Easter. The second is Pentecost because on Pentecost, the church corporate received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter two, it says that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all the believers. There is nothing more important in our spiritual lives than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. First, because Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. Second, because we receive our empowerment to do the work that God has called us to do through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What James says here is you can't live like Jesus wants you to live just in your own humanity. You need spiritual help to do it. You want to know why you say you can't forgive? Because you haven't turned it over to the Holy Spirit. Because in your humanity, there are things you ain't going to ever be able to forget. Some of y'all know that. Some of y'all been carrying grudges for 25 years. 35 years. If you're older than that, you've been carrying grudges longer than that. Amen. You can't just forgive in your humanity. But you can't say you can't forgive if you are operating in the Holy Spirit. It is our acknowledgement that we have to yield to spiritual control in order to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. And you only get that from the church. You don't get that from any other discipline. You don't get that from any other institution. You don't get that from any other system that you are involved in in the world. You don't get that from any other world approach. Psychology doesn't tell you that you have to be yielded to spirit control. Sociology doesn't tell you that you have to be yielded to spirit control. Government certainly doesn't tell you that you, they say you have to yield to the law, but it doesn't say that you have to yield to the Holy Spirit. You only get that from the church. That's why psychology and sociology and government and any other system you can come up with falls short of actually changing human behavior. Government can curb human behavior because you don't want to go to jail or you don't want to pay a fine. But curbing human behavior is not the same as changing the human heart. Only Christ can change the human heart. And he can only change the human heart as you recognize your need to yield to him. And that's what James is essentially talking about. He's saying that you must rely on Christ's power dwelling within you in order to overcome your sinful nature. I don't care how many years ago you, you, you came to Christ. If you haven't yielded to the Holy Spirit, you're still operating in your own sinful nature. You've heard me say this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand plus one. Culture dominates our lives far more than theology. 
we come into the church and we bring our culture with us into the church. And then we sprinkle some Jesus on our culture. Like you sprinkle salt on your food. If you don't have high blood pressure. Because you ain't supposed to use salt if you have high blood pressure. But, 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 but we, we, we season our culture with a little Jesus to try to tone it down, to try to, to try to smooth it out, to try to make it more palatable. But how many of us have truly yielded to the Holy Spirit? In every aspect of your life, you have totally yielded to the Holy Spirit. It's a hard thing to do. Especially when you got folk around you telling you when you do it, you're crazy. Because that's what they tell you. When you act like a Christian, when you truly act like a Christian, when you turn the other cheek, and when you walk the second mile, and when you show mercy even to those who have not been merciful or gracious toward you, somebody's going to walk up to you and whisper in your ear and say, what, what, what then got into you? You ought to be able to answer, Jesus. Jesus got into me. I don't know why you let folk treat you like Jesus. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. You don't want to read Isaiah? Well, just, just read Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus was taken from Gethsemane and brutalized and beaten and blindfolded and spat upon and never said one word in retaliation. Turn to, 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 to Mark chapter 15. And I'm not telling you to turn, I'm just saying if you want, if you want to get an example of that, where, where it talks about them putting nails in his hands and in his feet and lifting him up between two thieves. And the first words uttered out of his mouth was not all y'all going to hell. No. No. But Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You don't get that anywhere else. The only place where you are taught about yielding to spirit control is in the church. And James says, if church folk don't act like Jesus, then who is going to act like Jesus? James is asking, what business do church folk have talking about Jesus if nobody in the church is acting like Jesus? That's the question. I think it's a good question. I think it's a question that challenges each of us with regard to our level of commitment. How committed are we to following Jesus? You know, Paul and Barnabas had a falling out because when they got ready to go on their second 
uh, journey, and, and they got ready to recover, to, 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 to revisit re, uh, the places that they had gone on their first journey. Barnabas said, well, all right, let me go get John Mark, and he'll go with us. And Paul said, no, he ain't. He, he, he ain't going with us. I said, don't you remember what happened the last time he went with us? He quit. He stopped. He, he, he got homesick. And he decided that it was more important to go home than it was for him to stay committed to the journey. He ain't going with us. And Barnabas wanted him to go, and Paul said he wasn't going. And pretty soon the two of them split up. And Barnabas and Mark went one way, and Paul picked up a fellow named Silas, and he went a different way. What's my point? My point is, I'm glad God ain't Paul. Because you and I are more like John Mark than maybe you want to admit. You and I start on this journey. Every morning we start on this journey. Every morning we wake up. We thank God for waking us up this morning. We thank God for health and strength. And then we make a promise to God. I'm going to do better today than I did yesterday. And whether it takes five minutes or 35 minutes or 55 minutes, before the hour has come, we have gone back on the commitment that we made. And if God was Paul, God would say, you can't come with me because you keep quitting. Yeah. You, you keep going back your own way. Yeah. But God is gracious. Yes. And God keeps giving you chance after chance after chance. And you don't hear that anyplace else but the church. So that's, that's the point James wants to make here. He wants us to recognize the importance of living up to the commitment that we make. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. Fight for it deep inside yourselves. What James is describing is the same. I, I, I told you when we started this series, people want to pit James and Paul against one another. But in so many places, they say the same thing. James says, you have a fight deep inside yourself. Is that not the same thing that Paul says when he says that there's a war going on within me? That, 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 that I find that when I would do good, Evil is present on every hand. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, but I do it anyway. James is describing the very same thing. He's saying there's a war going on within each of us. And James is saying our problem is we're losing the war. It's not that we don't have a sincere desire to do what's right. It's that something else prevails over our desire. Selfishness. James has a word for it. Very next sentence. He says, it's lust. Now, most of us only use the word lust with regard to sex. 
But James uses the word lust here because he's talking about a deep-seated craving for something that you ain't supposed to have. Ah, for some people that's sex. For some people that's money. For some people that's power. For some people that's position. For some people that's revenge. You mad because somebody who did you wrong 30 years ago ain't suffered for it yet. Or at least ain't suffered enough for it yet. We lust for all kinds of things. James uses the word lust because he wants us to see just how deep the craving is. It is a part of our being. And he's saying our problem, the reason why these quarrels and wars crop up is because we're fighting against ourselves and the lust part wins out over the Jesus part. And he says it happens a lot. And he says we ought to be better than that. I asked y'all this last week. Y'all got mad, so get mad again. You've been on the battlefield since 1945, 50, 55. Some of y'all go before that. Some of y'all go after that. How long are you going to be on the battlefield before you start winning some wars? How is it that you can be on the battlefield this long and you still ain't won one war? I'm doing the best that I can. God knows my heart. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. Why is it that we are so comfortable making excuses for our shortcomings? James says your problem is you really don't want to. You know, there are things that we know we should do, and then there are things that we want to do. And, and, and even though our intention is to do the thing that we should, more often than not, the thing that we want to do prevails over the thing that we should do. You know you're supposed to exercise and eat right, right? You know McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and, and Sonic ain't supposed to be on your menu, right? You know them tea cakes and Chips Ahoy cookies ain't supposed to be on your, you know your doctor gonna fuss at you when you go in about all that stuff you ain't got no business eating. And so you wake up every morning, you say, I ain't gonna have it no more. But then you put it in the kitchen. You went to the grocery store. <laughs> and you found the aisle. You know, cookies are on their own aisle. <laughs> it wasn't like you, you, you happened upon it. Cookies got their own aisle. <laughs> you, you, you went and bought it. And you, and you paid for it. And you put it in your kitchen only to tell yourself, I ain't going to eat it. I bought it for the grandchildren. 
you know what your problem is. You, you know, you, you have every intention not to, but you do it anyway. Because James says you lust for what you don't have. And, and he says something else. He says you're willing to kill to get it. Now, somebody is going to read that and say, well, that's hyperbole. That's, that, that, that's James being extreme. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. What James is trying to say is that we are so into what we want that we are willing to do sinful things in order to get what we want. And we must acknowledge that that's, that, that that's a reality. That's a reality in our lives. We must acknowledge that there is no sin of which you are incapable of committing. Now, I, I know you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm bad, but my bad ain't as bad as somebody else's bad. I, I know we like to think that of ourselves. That, 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 that I'm, I, I'm just a little bad. Other folk are, are, are really bad. Well, let me just share a couple of things with you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all liars. Yeah. Anybody in here going to say, I ain't never told a lie? <laughs> let me help you. I ain't never told a lie since I've been saved. Did, did that help you any? No, no. Okay. Moses and David were murderers. I ain't going to ask you if you ever killed anybody, although Jesus says that if you harbor hatred in your heart, it's the equivalent of murder. So maybe I will ask, anybody in here guilty of murder? Because you're harboring hatred in your heart? Noah was a drunkard after the flood, not before the flood, after the flood, after the ark. Noah got out and planted some grapes and then fermented them and then said, let me taste this and see, oh, this is good. And he couldn't stop himself and Noah got drunk. He got passed out drunk. I'm just a little tipsy. No, he didn't get a little tipsy. No, he got passed out drunk. David was an adulterer. Jesus said, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. So I get to ask that question too. Anybody in here not guilty of adultery? Solomon was an idolater and a whoremonger. 700 wives. 300 concubines. That's a whole lot of fool. My point is this. It serves to remind, and by the way, this is not an exhaustive list, but my point is this. There is no sin that we cannot commit if we are given the right set of circumstances. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I always smile when I hear folks say, I would never do that. You just ain't been in the right set of circumstances. 
Now, I pray that you never find yourself in those circumstances. But the truth of the matter is, there is nothing that we are incapable of doing under the right set of circumstances. So, 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 so we have to recognize that when, when, when James says that you're willing to kill to get it, he's not speaking in exaggerated terms. He's speaking of the reality that when we want something badly enough, what we do is we rationalize. We justify. We say that the wrong that we do ain't as bad as the wrong that somebody else is doing. Even if we do the same thing, my motivation was better than their motivation. Now, James says there's no such thing as that. The Bible teaches that the path of sin leads ultimately to death. Turning your Bibles to Proverbs. Chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Starting with verse... Well, let's start with verse 7. Start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. Pay close attention, friend, to what your father tells you. Never forget what you learned at your mother's knee. Wear their counsel like flowers in your hair, like rings on your fingers. Dear friend, if bad companions tempt you, don't go along with them. If they say, let's go out and raise some hell, let's beat up some old man, mug some old woman, let's pick them clean and get them ready for their funerals. We'll load up on top quality loot. We'll haul it home by the truckload. Join us for the time of your life. With us, it's share and share alike. Oh, friend, don't give them a second look. They're racing to the very bad end hurrying and ruin, hurrying to ruin everything they lay hands on. Nobody robs a bank with everyone watching, yet that's what these people are doing. They're doing themselves in. When you grab all you can get, that's what happens. The more you get, the less you are. I can give you other ones. Verses 16 through 19 of the same first chapter. Verses 20 through 23, the same first chapter. But it's found repeatedly in the scripture that sin leads to worse things. It started out just being this. But before it was over, it became something else. James says that you have to be careful because when you let your desire get the better of you, you will find yourself in a mess. Number one, that you didn't expect to be in, and number two, that you don't know what to do with. And he says it's because you have failed to let God be at the center of your life. You cheat, you're cheating on God if all you want is your own way. Flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? 
The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. The principle here is clear. You will either stand with God and find that the world is against you, or you will stand with the world, which puts yourself in opposition to God. Now, I know before I even ask which one you think you're going to do. You think you're going to stand with God. I'm on the battlefield for my Lord. That's, that, that, that's what all of us think. And yet, when rubber meets road, when stuff hits the fan, I didn't say what, I just said stuff. When stuff hits the fan, more often than not, we find ourselves standing with the world and standing in opposition to God. Because the world seems so much more attractive to us. There is a way, the writer of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right, but the end thereof leads to destruction. Our problem is we think that the destruction ain't going to happen to us. Destruction happens to other folk. Doesn't happen to me. James says that's your problem. Your struggle is not just with you. In these verses, the, the first verses I read, James says your, your problem is that you're wrestling with yourself. In these verses, he says your problem is that you're also wrestling with the devil. It's the devil that speaks to you and causes you to think that somehow you're different than everybody else. It's the devil that, that speaks to you and tells you that you can do what is diametrically opposed to what God has called you to do. That's what causes the quarrels. That's what causes the problems. And if we're listening to the devil and not listening to God, James says our problem is hubris, arrogance, cocky. We just think we're better than other folks. If you read Philippians chapter 2, the, the, the only part that we, look, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I wasn't going to do that, but it, it helps to turn to. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We normally take these verses and prop them up and make them stand on their own as though it's, it, it, it's a theological discourse on the person of Christ when really that's not the way Paul writes it. We can take it as that, we do take it as that, but that's, that's not the way Paul writes it. 
he writes it in the context of the problem that existed in the church at Philippi. And the problem that existed in the church at Philippi was that there were two women in the church. A woman by the name of Euodia and a woman by the name of Sintiki. And if you get to the very end of Philippians, you'll see their names listed there. Euodia and Sintiki. They had a quarrel going on between the two of them in the church. Heaven help you. That, that certainly doesn't happen today where two folk in the church are fighting with one another. But their fight within the church became so pronounced, became so well known, that it started to have a ripple effect throughout the church. Eudea had friends, and Sintiki had friends. And Eudea's friends said that Eudea was right. And Sintiki's friends said, no, Eudea ain't right. Sintiki is right. Your friend ain't right, my friend. Is right. Well, I know my friend is right because she's my friend, and you wrong because you with the other one. And, and before you know it, the problem between the two women became a problem within the whole church. And so when, when word gets to Paul that, that this friction exists within the church, Paul writes not to tell them, not to be the judge that says this one is right and the other one is wrong. He's saying, oh, y'all wrong. And let me tell you why you're wrong. Because each of you have put yourselves ahead of Christ and ahead of one another. And so in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5, Paul urges the, the, the good members of the Philippi Missionary Baptist Church to humble themselves. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human, having become Human. He stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that of crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father.
we, we read that and, 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 and we lift it up and we see it as purely a statement on who Jesus is. But if you keep it in its context, it's not a statement on who Jesus is. It's a statement on who we are supposed to be. It's in the very first sentence of the paragraph. Think of yourselves the way Jesus thought of himself. That sets the stage for everything else. Paul is not giving us a theological, exegetical statement on Jesus. Paul is giving us a theological, exegetical statement on how we are supposed to conduct ourselves. He doesn't say Euodia is right. He doesn't say Syntyche is right. He doesn't say that either one's friends are right. What he says is, if you've got Jesus in your heart, then it doesn't matter who's right. Because you will be so consumed with doing the Jesus thing and loving one another the way Jesus loved us. You will be so committed to humbling yourself to one another that nobody has time or intention to prevail over one another. This is missing in the church. This is missing in too many of our local congregations. Everybody has a group. Everybody has a faction. Everybody has a clique. And everybody wants to think their group is more important than any other group. That their group is right and that the other groups are wrong. And people are so busy putting themselves in their own little groups that they've forgotten who called you together in the first place. Jesus, not you, not your ministry, not your friends, Jesus. And Jesus humbled himself. What makes you so special? that you can't humble yourself. And James, you're sitting there saying, what does any of this have to do with James? James is saying your problem with a lack of humility is because you've let the devil get into your head. And what the devil likes to do is make you think that you're more important than you are. All of us have seasons. We have, we have seasons of becoming, we have seasons where we are, and then we have seasons of regression. And here's the interesting thing. You don't always know which season you're in. Somebody thinks that he's in the season of all. I am. I'm big, I'm this, I'm that. And what you might not realize is that you're already in the season of regression. I, uh, I love, I used to love anyway, watching boxing. Not, not so much a big fan of MMA. My son likes that. To me, that's crazy stuff. But he likes that. 
uh, but, but, but I used to love boxing. And I was a huge Muhammad Ali fan. And I was a huge Sugar Ray Leonard fan. And I was a huge Roy Jones fan. And do you know what broke my heart with each and every one of them? They stayed too long. In his prime, nobody could touch Ali. In his prime, nobody could touch Leonard. In his prime, nobody could touch Roy Jones. But they stayed too long. They kept telling themselves, I'm still in the season of all. And they didn't realize that they were in a season of regression. And somebody who was in a season of coming up took down somebody who was in a season of, and, and often it was folk who, who, on their best day, if they caught them in their prime, couldn't even stay in the ring with them. Somebody in here thinks that you're still in the season of all. A-R-E, I know what I'm saying. A-R-E, I are somebody. I are important. Stuff don't happen unless I are there. You still think you're in the season of all. And you ain't there no more. And you know, do you know why you still think that? Because the devil didn't talk to you. And the devil has you fooled into believing that stuff can't happen without you. Get sick. That's all you got to do. You ain't got to die. Get sick. Where you can't come like you used to come. You can't be here every time the church door. Is, oh, it doesn't happen all at once. No, no, no. What happened to so-and-so? So-and-so wasn't here today. I need to check on so-and-so. I need to go by and see how they're doing. I need to find out what's going on. You let that happen for three months. Ain't nobody going to run by your house no more. And if it lasts for six months, they're going to forget you were ever here. And if it lasts for nine months, they're going to have somebody else in your spot. And by the time you get ready to come back, you know, that's all right. We already got somebody else in that spot. We don't need you no Hubris. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. Jesus says it over and over and over again. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. If anyone wants to be great, he must make himself the least. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I don't think the problem is that we don't know. The problem is we don't want to do. 
We, we, it, it, it takes a lot for some of us to humble ourselves. It takes a lot for us to, to, to take the second position and to be okay with taking the second position. But James says that's where the problems reside within the church. And, 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 and he says that the problem is that we don't honor God by living the example that Christ has set out for us. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. King James Version, I believe, says resist the devil and he will flee. But read the second part. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. So it's not just a matter of saying no to the devil. It's a matter of also saying yes to God. I got six minutes left. Walking involves a two-part process for most of us. You got to put one foot in front of the other. You don't walk very well if all you're doing is moving one foot and dragging the other one behind. I know some of us say that's the best I can do right about now. But, 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 but when you were in your prime, when you walked, you put one foot in front of the other. That's what James is saying here with regard to our spiritual progression. It's not enough to just say no to the devil. You got to say yes to God. It's not enough to say, devil, leave me alone. You have to also say, God, help me. And you got to say it not just when you wake up in the morning, but all day long. Somebody in here had to say no to the devil and yes to the Lord. Just since you've been in here, you ain't been here, in here but 55 minutes. And already you've had to say no to the devil and yes to the Lord. And maybe you had to say it two or three times. It's a two-step process. And you have, to, you have to do them all constantly. Peter reminds us that the devil can use you just as quickly and easily as God can. Yeah. In one moment, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In the next moment, no, Jesus, what you're saying ain't going to ever happen to you. You and I are Peter. Yeah. And so we have to constantly tell the devil, not just I ain't going to cuss him out, but I'm going to love him in spite of the fact that I don't like him. Did you know that you don't have to like everybody to love everybody? Did you know that you're obligated to love folk even if you don't like them? Bible ain't never said nothing about you gotta like everybody. Bible says you gotta love everybody. And if you've got the old time religion, y'all remember that, that hymn? Give me that old time. The book now says, tis the, or no, give me that old time. Not give me, give me. 
that old time religion. Well, one of them verses says, makes me love everybody. That's what Christ can do in our lives. But in order for that to happen, we have to constantly resist the devil. Last thing, three minutes. Don't badmouth each other. Don't badmouth each other. I'm going to go back to my mother wit and then I'm going to eat my lunch. My mama used to say, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say nothing at all. If, 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 if you got a problem with somebody, if you got a problem with the way they act, if you got a problem with the way they think, if you got a problem with some of the behaviors that they uh, put forth, keep your mouth shut. Somebody gonna come up and ask you, what you think about that? I'm going to lunch. <laughs> what you got to say about that? It's lunchtime right about now. And I'll see you another time. May we stand together, please. since I can remember, uh, my family has always been involved in music. When we were young, uh, my mom and my dad played uh, at our family church, and we would essentially provide the music for it. So uh, as far as that much uh, goes, it's, it's just always been in my life uh, in, in some form or fashion. Started uh, with my family at first, uh, and then it just kind of grew. Uh, when I, At the school that I, uh, I went to, there was a need for musicians. So it didn't matter that I was in second grade or third grade. Uh, could you play the piano? Yes, <laughs> we need you for a service. So, um, a lot of a lot of it, I was doing it, and I guess I fell in love with it before I knew that it wasn't something that everybody did, just because I grew up with it. This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can.